Well, good morning. That was really sad. Let's try that again. Good morning. That was really good. I'm glad to be with you, and I hope you're glad to be here today. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them, open them up to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just bring you greetings from Ozark Christian College. We have had a long relationship with Ninth Street Christian Church. We're proud of graduates like Tyler uh, and current students like David that you have with you as an intern and the longtime trustees like Don Steen, very familiar name to many of you. And uh, we're grateful for that partnership. So thank you uh, for helping us train men and women for Christian service. Would encourage you, uh, if you didn't see it on the way in, on the way out, we've got some literature on the table out there and I would especially love for you to take one of these um, little key tags um, that you can just put on your keychain it's a little prayer reminder Matthew 9 38 um, ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers for the harvest field would love for you to take that as a prayer reminder to pray for more workers for the harvest field uh, looking forward to uh, this message Romans chapter 1 and here's what I came to say to you today in a sentence in the bad news of the world we need the good news of the kingdom. Can I say that again? In the bad news of the world, we need the good news of the kingdom. Now, I think that the secret desire of every human heart is this. We all want a kingdom. Now, when I was, when I was a kid, um, we went to Burger King. Burger King's motto at that time was, have it your way. And uh, we got to wear a little paper king's crown. Did you remember these? And, uh, and, you know, you could order your sandwich however you wanted it, and they would have to fix it that way. And that's what we all want, I think. We want a sphere where what we say goes, where we can have it our way, where we get to call the shots. We want to be king of our little world. My will be done. We all want a kingdom. Now, you probably did this when you were a toddler. We've got some kids in here this morning. And when you were two years old, besides the word no, what do you think your favorite word probably was? I think it was mine, right? I have two little grandsons. They are three and one. They were at my house this weekend. And you can watch them playing on the floor with the toys. Mine, mine. Uh, in fact, somebody said this. Somebody said that property law, according to toddlers, goes something like this. If I saw it first it's mine. If I like it, it's mine. If you put it down, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. And if it looks like mine, it's mine. <laughs> mine, mine, mine. And when you were two years old, what were you doing? You were establishing a kingdom. Now, you probably did this when you were 10 years old. Here's how it happens at 10. You're on a long car ride with your family. You're in the back seat with your brother. And what do you do? You start drawing lines in the middle of the back seat. This is your space. This is my space. You stay on your side. I'm going to stay over here. What are you doing? You're marking out your kingdom. My kids did this. My son, Luke, when he was 10, and my daughter, Lydia, when she was 8, they'd be in the back seat, long car ride. They'd draw the line down the middle of the seat. And then you know what happens next, right? Luke, my son, age 10, he would start walking his fingers over into his sister's space. He can't help it. He's a boy. This is what they do. And, and Lydia hollers, Dad, he's in my space. And they start fighting. And then what happens? Even though I am driving, I turn around. Because whose kingdom do I think the car is? 
mine. And, and so I said, do you want me to come back there? They know I'm not going to come back there. I'm driving 70 miles an hour, all right? And so what do I do? I send Mr. Hand back there. Did your dad ever do this to you? All right? And so Luke and Lydia are scrunched up into the corners, and I'm trying to think of how can I get them out of those corners. I like what John Ortberg says. He says, a little tap on the brakes will bring them right into play. <laughs> Thy kingdom come, all right? And when you were 10 years old, what were you doing there in the back seat? You were establishing your kingdom. You probably did this when you were 30 years old. Here's how it happened for me. You, you know that a man's house is his, is his castle. Every castle has a throne. Mine sits in our living room. It is a brown, overstuffed, lazy boy recliner. It is a beautiful piece of furniture. I love that chair. When we first got that chair back when I was 30, and my children were still small at that point, I gathered all of my kids around. I have six of them. And, and I said to my children, I said, children, do you see this chair? This brown, lazy boy chair, this is my chair. Do not sit on the brown, lazy boy chair. Do not touch the brown, lazy boy chair. Do not play around the brown, lazy boy chair. Do not eat on, breathe on, think about, or look at the brown, lazy boy chair. Children, do you remember the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden? Hmm. On every other chair in this house, you may freely sit. But upon this chair, this brown, lazy boy chair, you may not sit. For in the day you sit there upon, you shall surely die. <laughs> and and that, that is my throne. My house is my castle. I sit on my throne with my royal scepter in my hand, the remote control. And from that chair, I control things. You know, orders are given and decrees are made. Judgment is passed. Punishment is rendered. What I say goes in that little Proctor universe sitting on that chair. I am king of my little world. And I think... That's what we all secretly want. We want a place where what we say goes, my will be done. We all want a kingdom. Now, this morning here at Ninth Street, y'all are starting a new sermon series called Kingdom Living. Kingdom Living. And over the next few weeks, you're going to be looking at what the Bible says about life in the kingdom of God. What's it look like when what God says goes? And you're going to learn that God's kingdom is a kingdom of faith, and it's a kingdom of love, and it's a kingdom where races are united and not divided. It's a kingdom where God's will is done. But the topic that I was given today is gospel. We're going to start this series by talking about the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. In the bad news of the world, we need the good news of the kingdom. Now, all year long, you've been reading this book, Core 52, and if you read the chapter for this week, this chapter uh, 27, chapter on gospel, you know that the two verses you were supposed to memorize were from Mark chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. You talk about two gospel-saturated books, Mark and Romans. They are as, as gospel as you can get. And so this morning, we're going to look at the gospel using those two books, Mark and Romans. We're going to start with the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. You got your Bibles open. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul starts the book this way. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And then for the rest of the book of Romans, what does Paul do? He just unpacks the gospel. He unpacks that gift of salvation. And that's what I want to do with you all for the next few minutes. I want to unpack this gospel gift, and let me tell you why. This year, 2020, has been hard 
Can I get an amen on that one today? All right? I mean, you talk about bad news of the world. This year has been bad news after bad news. To start the year, way back in January, do you remember this? Australia caught on fire, all right? And then there was political turmoil, president's impeachment, and then coronavirus pandemic hits, and thousands of people lose their lives, and then an economic slump, millions of people lose their jobs, stock market on a roller coaster, tragic racial injustice, riots, unrest. And then, you know, there's less serious things like toilet paper shortages and, you know, no Olympics. And we're, it's July 12th. I haven't watched a single St. Louis Cardinals game yet this year. This is a tragedy, folks. And those are just the national news stories. We all have our personal stories of bad news. This past week, one of my friends at church, 35 years old, United States veteran, served in Iraq, came back with PTSD, struggled, and was really fighting, working hard. But this past week, my friend Dustin took his own life. I went to his funeral on Friday. And you've got your personal stories of bad news. And I'm telling you, this year, 2020, it's hard. And in moments of hardship, I don't know what you do, but maybe some of you are, maybe some of you are like my wife. Her life motto is don't just sit there, do something. Do you know people like this? They're doers, all right? Uh, Katie can't sit still. If there is a problem in her life, she's going to attack it. She's going to make a plan to solve it. Katie loves whiteboards. And so um, she loves making to-do lists on whiteboards. And I kid you not, this is an actual number. We have 12 whiteboards in our house, all with different to-do lists on it, all right? Her brain is like this internet browser with like 57 tabs open, all right? And uh, like all the time, she is a multitasking ninja queen. And she has no off button, no dimmer switch. She's just full throttle or unconscious. That's all she is. She's a doer. Don't just sit there, do something, all right? And sometimes... When hard times come, that's the exact right response. Go do something. But sometimes, for the Apostle Paul, when he would face problems, persecution, prison, his motto was, don't just do something, sit there. He's writing this letter of Romans that you have open there in front of you, and he's on his way to Jerusalem as he writes it. And the Holy Spirit has already told him that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be thrown in jail again. And so what does Paul do? He sits down, and he just thinks about the gospel. That's what the whole book is. All 16 chapters. He's preaching the gospel. And he's not just preaching the gospel to his readers. He's preaching the gospel to himself. In the midst of the bad news, he's just meditating on the good news. Back in the church that I go to in Joplin, I am the children's church teacher. Whenever I'm not traveling, I teach children's church. And, um, and, and so all the kids in our church know what this is. We call this the baptism box. All right, I grabbed it out of our cabinet in the children's church room last Sunday. And, um, and, and whenever there's a baptism at our church, we pull this box out and we talk about God's gift of salvation. I put a little red bow on this box uh, to make it look like a gift and, and to cover up the words Victoria's Secret, which is right underneath there. And, and one of the kids, all right, in children's church, they always get to come up and they get to take the lid off of the gift of salvation and they get to see what exactly is in this gift of sal salvation. And, and one of them will pull this out. What's that, kids? Soap. Yeah, what does soap stand for? 
God washes away our sins. That's right. That's part of the gift of salvation. That is, that is awesome. What's this, kids? That's a battery. What's that stand for? The power of the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's part of the gift of salvation. God gives us the Holy Spirit. And then, let's see. Oh, here it is. Um, what's, what's this, kids? And they say, it's a ticket. What's that stand for? That's your ticket to heaven. That's right. That's part of the gift of salvation. We get that when we're baptized into Christ. And, and the theological words for these, you understand, are justification and sanctification and glorification. All right, God gives us grace for our past and power for our present, and he gives us hope for our future. But these are all part of the gift of salvation. And every one of those three elements, Paul mentions in the book of Romans. Because what is he doing there? He's just sitting there with this, with this gift of the gospel on his lap, and he's just slowly unpacking it, and he's unsavoring, he's savoring all of the elements of salvation. And if 2020 has been hard for you, you want to know how you can hang tough? Sit down with the gospel on your lap and just think about it. Meditate on it. Psychological studies show that grateful people are more enthusiastic, they're more determined, they're physically stronger, they're more emotionally resilient. And sometimes Paul says, you just need to... You need to have a seat, and you just need to unpack this gift of salvation. Count your blessings. Be thankful. Don't just do something. Sit there. So could I do that with you for just a few minutes? Could I, could I unpack this gift of salvation? First of all, remember, Paul mentions that we have grace for our past. Grace for, boy, do I need this gift of grace. Steve Brown, is a, he's a preacher down in Florida, and one time after he was done preaching a sermon, a lady came up to him and, and she said, uh, she said, you know, I've heard a lot of preachers before say that they were sinners, but you're the first one I ever believed. <laughs> well, you can believe me this morning when I tell you that I'm a sinner. There are too many mornings that I wake up and I look in the mirror and I feel disappointed because I know how I failed the day before. And I, I am not good enough, none of us is moral enough or nice enough or gifted enough to somehow warrant God's attention or earn his salvation. Listen, all of us, we offer God absolutely nothing. William Temple said, the only thing I contribute to redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. We're all sinners. We've all disobeyed God. We're rebels. The punishment we deserve is death. But what does Paul say in Romans chapter 3? He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. The gospel is not spelled D-O. The gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. I'm not saved because of anything I do, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. And because of his work on the cross, my sins are washed away. I'm forgiven. I'm made new. I belong to him. And listen, in hard times, in a bad news world, I just sit with the gospel on my lap and I say thank you God for your grace we've not only been given grace for our past but we have been given power for our present God gives us the Holy Spirit as part of the gift of salvation and boy do I need this gift of the Holy Spirit because if you've ever read the New Testament you know that when you start this thing called following Jesus he like asks us to do things that are humanly impossible I mean Jesus says things like this, love your enemy, uh, be holy, persevere through trials, resist temptation. Those are really, really hard. 
<laughs> he says, when somebody whacks you on the right cheek, turn to him the left cheek also and say, hey, don't forget this one. Right? Be a servant to other people. Forget about yourself. In fact, die to yourself. When people throw you in prison and they beat you up, you should sing in prison and rejoice. Oh, and by the way, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> what? I can't do that. That's humanly impossible. How in the world am I ever supposed to do all of these things? Answer, in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized into Christ, the Holy Ghost becomes your holy guest. He comes to live inside of you. God, God the Father is God without skin. God the Son, Jesus, is God with skin. But God the Holy Spirit is actually God within my skin. And the power of the Holy Spirit is now coursing through my veins. And the fact is that all of this crazy impossible love that I'm supposed to have and all this patience and perseverance and joy and kindness to my enemies, all that self-control in the face of temptation, that's all the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I don't have to manufacture all that strength and character and virtue. I don't have to somehow grip my teeth and gut this out on my own. The Holy Spirit gives me power. What is it that Paul says in Romans chapter 8? He says, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit and the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So when you're facing hard times, in the midst of the bad news of the world, would you just sit there with the gospel on your lap and would you say, thank you, God, for the gift of your Holy Spirit? We're given power for our present, but we are also given this gift, the hope for our future, the hope of heaven. That's part of the gift of salvation. And man, do I need this gift of of hope. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the future of humanity can be summed up in a single word, and the word is death. Statistics show that one out of every one human beings dies, right? That's the way it is in Jasper County. Is it here in Millers? Yeah. Um, I, I read a, this is a true story, true story. There was a lady down in Greenville, South Carolina, this was several years ago, who received this letter. She got this letter in the mail from the Department of Social Services. The letter read this way. Your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1992 because we received notice that you passed away. You may reapply if your circumstances change. <laughs> and listen, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but if you die circumstances don't change, right? That's not the way it works. When you move into the graveyard, you don't move out again, all right? I mean, nobody escapes. The scoreboard of history reads death 100 billion, humanity zero. Death undefeated. Nobody beats it. But then came Jesus. And on that very first Easter morning, what did Jesus do? He destroyed death. He broke its power. He defeated it once for all. And the scoreboard of history now reads, death 100 billion, humanity one. And someday that score is going to change too. Because Jesus' resurrection, the Bible says, was a preview of coming attractions. A day is coming when all of our bodies will be resurrected to new life. What is it that Paul says in Romans chapter 8? He says creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. And in this hope, this hope, he says, we were saved. Someday we will be resurrected to live in heaven, a world free of pain and suffering and tears and decay and death. It was the old Baptist preacher, Vance Havner, who used to say, he said, the hope of dying is the only thing that keeps me alive. And listen, I need that 
hope. When you are surrounded by bad news, how do you hang tough? I sit with the gospel on my lap and I say, thank you, God, for the hope of heaven. And in the midst of the bad news of the world, we need the good news, the good news of, of grace and the good news of the Holy Spirit and the good news of the hope of heaven. And that's the gospel, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. But there's one thing missing. I don't know if you noticed it. There's one more thing. And if you read your chapter this week in that book, Core 52, you weren't just reading from Romans chapter 1. You were also reading from Mark chapter 1. And I want you to listen. In Mark chapter 1, what does Mark say the gospel includes? Mark chapter 1, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, and listen to what it says. It says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is this good news? The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they say that the gospel, the good news, is actually the kingdom. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. Luke 4, 43, Jesus says this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns because that is why I was sent. Matthew chapter 10 verse 7, Jesus sends the 12 out to preach and it says he sent them out with the following instructions as you go, preach this message the kingdom of heaven is near. The gospel does not just include grace and the Holy Spirit and heaven, it actually also includes the kingdom we don't just get a new past behind us and a new power within us and a new hope ahead of us the gospel is that we have a new king over us. And so in my baptism box, I actually put one more item in here. And this item is, it's a picture of Jesus. And if you were to look at that picture, you could see that behind him is a throne. On his head is a golden crown. What's this, kids? King Jesus. That's right. Part of salvation, hear me, the best part of salvation is that we get a new king. But wait a minute, you, you do remember how we started this message here this morning, right? We all want a kingdom. We all want to be king of our own world. We, get, we want to get to call the shots, my will be done. So how in the world is this good news? That somebody else is going to come in and take my chair. <laughs> that somebody else is going to come in and sit on the throne and call the shots and be in charge. Thy will be done. If it's true that in the midst of the bad news of the world, we need the good news of the kingdom... How exactly is this new king good news? Well, the gospel of Mark is going to tell us. First of all, Mark says this is good news because Jesus is a wise king. And man, do I need a wise king. I don't know about anybody else in here. I thought that when I got older and older, I would get smarter and smarter. But if you've ever seen the movie, I just get dumb and dumber. All right? I am as dumb as a box of rocks sometimes. And when I'm king of my own world, I make dumb decisions and it's especially true when I'm facing hard times. There was a, a headline on CNN this week, um, and it said, anxiety makes us bad decision makers. And man, that's true. When we're surrounded by bad news, we don't think as clearly. But what if we had Jesus as our king? Would he be a wise guide, a wise teacher? Here's a word that you may not think of when you think of Jesus. Brilliant. Usually when we think of Jesus, we think of words like loving or holy or miraculous. But when's the last time you thought, Jesus, 
genius. Because listen, in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, Mark tells us the people were amazed at his teaching. Huge crowds would gather to drink in his teaching. And I love this verse. Mark 12, 37 says that the large crowd listened to him with delight. Oh, man, Jesus is so wise. And sometimes we overlook Jesus' sheer intellectual stature. All right. Uh, Colossians 2, 3 says that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Jesus, he had complete cognitive mastery of all phases of reality, uh, physical, moral, spiritual. Jesus knew how to transform the molecular structure of water to turn it into wine. When he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, that meant that Jesus knew the scientific equation for creating matter from energy. What? He knew the medical formula for how to transform the tissues of the human body from sickness into health. He knew the scientific secrets for suspending gravity and interrupting weather patterns. All right? You've heard of Da Vinci, Einstein, Stephen Hawking, compared to Jesus, morons. All right? They're not smart at all. He is literally the smartest man who ever lived. And that's not just true in scientific matters. Jesus knew things that, that people, uh, you know, great teachers of history, he knew things about morality and about philosophy that they could never understand. He understands the shape of reality, how people work, how life works. When you ignore Jesus' teaching, you're going to bang your shins on the furniture of reality. Because when he tells you like how you ought to live, he's trying to help you avoid the hard spots. And if you don't do what Jesus says, you're just sawing against the grain of the universe and you're going to get splintered. Because sin, it's not just wrong, it's dumb. Jesus is trying to help you live a wise life. And when I insist on my will be done, my life is a mess. It's like a house built on sand. It'll come crashing down. But when we follow Jesus' teaching, it's like building your house on a rock. And your life will be unmovable, unshakable. You have a very wise king. And that's good news. But Mark actually says something else. He says, this is also good news that we have this king because Jesus is a mighty king. He's very mighty, and boy, do I need a mighty king. This is one of the biggest themes in the gospel of Mark. Jesus has power over demons. Mark chapter 1, demon-possessed man. Jesus says, come out of him. And what happens? The impure man, it says, shook, or he says, the impure spirit shook the man violently, and it came out of him with the shriek. And what does it say? All the people were oh, amazed. Power over demons. Jesus had power over sickness. Mark chapter 2, lame man, what does Jesus say? Get up. And it says he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. And it says what? This amazed everyone. Jesus has power over sickness. All right. Uh, there's there's a, a power over death. Mark chapter 5. I love this story. Dead girl. Jesus says, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up, began to walk around. They were all completely astonished. He has power over death. Jesus has power over nature. Mark chapter 6, storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walks out on top of the water, climbs into the boat with them, and what does it say? The wind died down. They were completely amazed. He has power over demons and sickness and death and nature. Jesus is a king that is so mighty, there is nothing he can't handle. About three years ago, um, my wife Katie and I and my daughter Lydia... I went down to Florida. We went to a conference there. This conference was at a very nice hotel uh, right on the beach in Florida. And it turns out they were filming a movie there at the hotel while we were there. Now, I have never seen this movie. And in fact, I would not recommend that you go see this movie. All right. Uh, but they were filming the movie Baywatch 
at this hotel that we were at. And this movie stars Zac Efron and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, big movie stars, right? And so we actually saw them. We saw these two movie stars. You can see this picture that uh, one of the folks in our group snapped of, of them. And, and so actually one night during the conference, it's a true story, um, we went down uh, that night and we sat down by the outside pool with several of our friends. They had the pool all roped off because they were filming a night scene for this movie. We got to watch them film this, this scene. So I'm sitting right in the front, right on the rope. And on the other side of the rope, there's a couple of big guys with black t-shirts and walkie-talkies. They're the crew. You know, they're kind of standing guard there at the rope. And then just beyond them, like 15 feet from where we're sitting, is Zac Efron. All right. And he's standing there in the pool. And my daughter, Lydia, who's 20 years old at this point, um, she's sitting beside me. And, uh, you know, she's just looking at Zac Efron and, you know, she's kind of fanning herself. And she's saying, oh, thank you, Jesus. Wow. Good job. Wow. My word. You're just whoa. And, and you know, what an idiot. But anyways, um, uh, and right past Zac Efron is The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, I want you to look at this picture. Look at this next picture. Can I just say, the man is massive. He's big on screen. He's bigger in real life. He is a huge human chunk of granite. And in this scene that we watched, The Rock is mad at Zac Efron's character. And so The Rock shoves Zac Efron, boom, shoves him into the pool. And we watched them shoot the scene like six or seven times. And of course, you know, The Rock was actually shoving Zac Efron's uh, body double, his stunt double, uh, in, into the pool. Zac was just standing in the pool for the next shot. Um, and, and so we're watching them film this six or seven times. And while we're sitting there, all of a sudden, those two guys in, in big guys with black t-shirts and, and walkie-talkies, all of a sudden, they came over to me where I'm sitting on the rope. And they said, um, sir, we're going we're gonna to need you to come with us. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, What's going on? I, I thought I was being real quiet. Is there, is there some mistake? And they said, no, sir, no mistake. Just, just come with us. And apparently what had happened was um, those two guys thought I was The Rock's body double. <laughs> that did not happen, all right? That did absolutely not happen, all right? We did see The Rock. We did watch him film this. But listen, look at me. Nobody has ever mistaken me for Dwayne The Rock Johnson, all right? I am not that big of a guy. I am not buff. I am not jacked. I am not a fearsome figure. Now, I have, I have been in some dangerous places in my life. I have been in neighborhoods in third world countries that were so crime-ridden, I kid you not, they were patrolled by helicopters right over our heads with soldiers, AK-47s, hanging out the door. I've been on the streets of New York City one time at 2 a.m. when a group of guys suddenly came spilling out of a building onto the sidewalk. And right there around me, a bar fight, a bar fight starts brewing. 2 a.m., New York City. Now, when I'm walking down those kind of streets, when I'm in those kind of neighborhoods, I do not strike terror in anybody's heart. All right? I don't know how to handle those situations. I did not have a class in Bible college on breaking up bar fights, all right? This is not my spiritual gift. I mean, I'm a children's church teacher, you know? What am I going to do? All right, guys, knock it off. Sit down. I mean it, all right? That doesn't work in children's church, all right? It's sure not going to work in a bar room brawl. And in those situations, I'm telling you, my heart starts to beat faster. My palms start to sweat. I can feel the fear. But that night in Florida, here was the thought that went through my head. I thought to myself, what if, what if the rock was my friend? What if I had the rock with me in moments like that? I mean, look at these next pictures, all right? The rock is huge. 
The Rock is powerful. If you've ever watched any of his movies, you know that The Rock is pretty much the baddest man on the planet. He drinks jet fuel for breakfast and eats machine gun bullets for lunch, all right? What if The Rock was like my friend, my partner, my, my constant companion? If I had The Rock with me, I, I could walk down any street with confidence. If I had The Rock with me, I could move through life with courage. If I had The Rock with me, I could be free from anxiety and fear. If I had The Rock with me, the middle of a barroom brawl would be a perfectly safe place for me to be. You listen to me, church. I do. Every moment of every day, I have The Rock of Ages at my side. Jesus Christ is my rock. He is my refuge. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of Judah, the King of the universe, and the champion of heaven. He is the creator of the cosmos, conqueror on the cross, the slayer of the sin, destroyer of death, and the subjugator of Satan himself. He is the sustainer of galaxies, the sovereign over every nation. He is Revelation's righteous warrior on a white war horse. And do you, th do you think for a moment that I am worried about pandemics and presidential elections or problems of any kind? I am not because I have the rock that will never be broken. I have the rock that will never be shaken. I have the rock of ages with me. We have a mighty king. And that's very good news. But I'll end with this. Mark says we have a wise king and a mighty king, but we have a loving king. We have a loving king. I have six kids. So you can imagine finding one-on-one -on -one time with my kids has always been kind of a challenge. But I, I tried hard, especially with my two middle kids. Sometimes middle kids get forgotten, right? And so whenever I had one-on-one -on -one time with one of my two middle kids, I had a ritual that I did only with those two kids. And, and uh, Clara is kid number three. She's my first middle kid. And so one time when I was alone with Clara, you know, she'd be like five, six years old. Uh, we'd be, you know, driving just the two of us in a car to Walmart or something. Here was my liturgy. This was my little ritual that I would that I would do with Clara. I'd lean over and I'd say, hey, Clara, guess what? What? You know what? What, Dad? Guess what? What? You know what? What? And I just kept asking her those same two questions. You know what? Guess what? Over and over again. Pretty soon, you know, attention began to build. Excitement began to grow. Finally, when she couldn't stand any longer, I, I'd say, guess what? What? You know what? What? I'd say, I love you. And she'd go, yay! All right. And that was our that was our little ritual. All right. And I did that with, with uh, you know, kid number three. Kid number four, this was the first time I ever did it with kid number four. C Carl is my other middle kid. And, and you have to understand, um, you know, it was just Carl and I. We were actually in an empty church building. We were walking down a long hallway together. And I decided to do this, this liturgy, this ritual with him for the very first time. And if you met Carl today, he's 18, just graduated from high school. He's 6'2", 235 pounds. He's huge, all right, offensive lineman. And even at three years old, he was just built like this little NFL linebacker. He had this little barrel chest, and he's walking beside me down the hallway, and he's sucking on a lollipop. And I decided to do this for the first time. And so I leaned over and said, hey, Carl, guess what? What? You know what? What, Dad? Guess what? What? You know what? What? Asked the same two questions over and over. Excitement began to build. Tension began to grow. Finally, we couldn't stand any longer. I said, guess what? What? You know what? What? I said, I love you. And he popped that lollipop out of his mouth. He said, yep, you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I loved that moment. Because, listen, I want my kids to know deep in their bones that if nothing else in this world is true, this much is true, their father loves them. Every human being wants to know that the one who is over you, your father, your leader, your king, you want to know that person cares about you. We all want to live in the security of knowing that we are loved. And listen, when we get to the end of the book of Mark, what do we see? We see Jesus in the upper room at that last supper, and we hear him say, 
this body is my, or this bread is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood poured out for you. And we see Jesus arrested and we see him beaten and we see him flogged and we, we see that crown of thorns shoved onto our king's head. And we see him crucified, nailed to that cross. And we know why. It was for us. It was for our sins. And when God the Father looks down from heaven at his once pure and perfect son now hanging on that cross, covered in my sins, covered in your sins, covered in all of the sins of all of humanity for all of history, this huge, great, black, writhing mass of evil there on his shoulders. God the Father could no longer stand the sight of it. And, and, and as the sky grew dark at noon on that Friday, the old gospel preachers used to say that was God turning his back on Jesus. And that's why Christ cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was abandoned by his own father because he would not abandon you. And when we see him there on that cross, it is as if we are hearing him say, I love you and our hearts whisper back, yep, you do. We have a wise king and we have a mighty king, but best of all, we have a loving king. This is very good news. Grace for our past, power for our present, and hope for our future. But the best part of the gospel is the kingdom. We have a new king. In the midst of the bad news of the world, we need the good news of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for the gift of the gospel. And we thank you for how good you have been to us. Father, keep us faithful, even when times are hard. We pray this in the name of our king, Jesus. Amen.